This is an ABC podcast. Stephanie Tisdall. G'day. I've called you here today because I want to discuss booze and morality with you. Brilliant. Let's do it. And something called the Social Purity Society, which if it still existed today, I'm confident you would be a member of. Thank you. Right. The reason why I have um, set these quite unusual discussion topics for the day is because back when the women's suffrage movement was a thing, it was very, very closely related to the temperance movement, i.e. the move to ban alcohol from the colonies, oh, right? Yes. And the women who got politically active were often politically active because they were trying to save other women from the dreadful things that boozed up gambling and otherwise awful men did to them, right? Like, so that was the source of women's political power in those early days. And, in fact, the Women's Suffrage League in South Australia, and that's the gang that got women the vote and the right to run for parliament in South Australia in 1894, the first place in the entire world where that happened. And they were, when they started out, called the Social Purity Society. Wow. Right? So they were all about morals and they were particularly about booze and what a terrible poison it was upon the society. So there was this fear among men who were in Parliament or just generally influential that these women would end up banning alcohol, which would be, you know, nasty for them and not much fun. Wow. So that was kind of the way the women's suffrage movement kind of started out. Now, obviously, the good news for the parliamentary boozers is that um, women MPs, when they started getting elected, whatever, did not ban alcohol. But I wanted to talk today about booze because it's amazing how many parliamentary women that I've spoken to over the last year have raised the alcohol consumption in and around the parliament as an issue. Wow. So I thought we could do like a little short history of politics and drinking, like a booze cruise. Yes, please do. So in the old Parliament House in Canberra, which was uh, an extremely overcrowded building, it's because they built it, it was supposed to be a temporary building, but they didn't want to spend the money on actually building a new one because no politician ever wants to try and get support for spending money to build a lovely new palace for them to live in. Like it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was super overcrowded and some by the end of the life of old Parliament House there were like MPs three to an office, like they were sharing offices, there were people just everywhere and no space for them to work. So the members' bar became quite a significant place where people did business and did meetings. Right. So people actually did business in the pub in Parliament House. And I want to read you something from Rob Chalmers' book on Old Parliament House. So there was the members' bar for MPs and the non-members' bar, which was for all the other hangers-on. He writes, The non-members' bar was the social centre for all who worked in the place, including the parliamentarians. They had their own bar, but often preferred the company available, particularly female, in the non-members' bar. When the parliament was sitting, the non-members' bar was a busy meeting spot in the evening, right up till one hour after the House or the Senate rose, generally about 10.30 or 11pm. When the bar closed, drinkers drifted off to various offices and drinking spots around the building. Like most licensed establishments throughout Australia at the time, here ladies did not enter the bar. 
Off the non-members bar, a small room for ladies was served via a hatch from the bar. Here there were at least as many male drinkers as there were females. Some years later, the ladies' brown room, as it was called, was shut and ladies came into the bar. The extra space was used to expand the non-members bar, which, although still crowded, was a little more comfortable. It was a place for gossip, tips and assignations, as well as for excessive drinking. The gallery, until the old building was vacated, was a very boozy establishment. Hmm. (laughs) So you've got this kind of booze fest happening inside the parliament, which actually performs quite a significant part of the legislative process, right? And... But women just weren't really part of that culture. So one of the first women to make it into the members' bar was a lady called Nancy Butfield. And she was uh, the Senator for South Australia, elected in 1955. So this was a time when women still weren't allowed into front bars, you know, in pubs around the country. She was also the first woman ever elected to public office in South Australia um, many, many years after they sort of legalised such shenanigans. This is a little bit of tape of her remembering the decision that she made to start going into the parliamentary bar. Prior to going into politics, I'd always said that I thought half the trouble with the segregation of sexes in South in Australia was because women were barred from go- going into bars. And I thought it would be far better if, if there was a mixture of people and, and it would break down this sort of sexual discrimination thing. So when I got into Parliament, I said to Menzies, what do you feel about me going into the bar? I said, it's a, according to my principles, I should go in. Into the members' bar. Into the members' bar. And he said, by all means, he said, you're very foolish if you don't. He said, as a, as a member of parliament, that's where they discuss the issues and you, you'll miss out if you don't go in. OK, so, like, she's adapted to the system and gone, right, that's where the power's happening, that's where I'm going to be, and I will, you know, to participate in that system. But, like, what happens if you're not actually a big drinker? Like, Well, I'm not a big drinker. Right. And my industry, like, comedy is... Backstage, just all drunks basically. No, no, it's just <laughs> it's just that like backstage in the green room, there's always beers, wine, to the point where there's nothing for me to drink backstage, right. except for you know water, which is fine. Um, huh. But it'd be nice if there was just like a bottle of coke or so you know what I mean. Does it feel like you miss out on part of the culture because you're not kind of hundred percent right? Yeah, because I don't like I, I I don't like going out late. Yeah, I don't like partying. I drive everywhere. I absolutely feel like I miss out. And I think it's a, um, you know, I've just come off being on set and um, I found I was drinking every night just mm. because you don't want the connection to end. Yeah, right. You know, it's a, it's a really odd thing. And, and if there's power dynamics involved in that, I mean, there's something as well, I think, this is such an odd thing to say, but I think there's something as a woman to be able to hold your alcohol right Mm -hmm. that is very impressive to men for some reason yes that is true Mm -hmm. and I think there's almost an element of that but like it's a competition Mm. or a test in some way oh 100% a test but I just can't handle hangovers you know well you will love Ros Kelly's solution then because Ros Kelly she was elected in 1980 she was the first lower house representative from the ACT to get into parliament. She was also the first woman to have a baby while serving as a federal parliamentarian, which is another story entirely. But she also wasn't a big drinker. Um, So she got around it by actually getting interested in another very blokey pursuit, 
which is footy. Mm. Like so, she was um really involved in the Canberra Raiders. So she was kind of like interesting, a, yeah. And so that is how she got into that kind of club, I guess. Even though she wasn't a big drinker, have a listen to her talking about it. See, the members' bar was great for me because I used to have milkshakes there at night. Because I had this link with the Raiders, mm. I had a topic of conversation with particularly the old members of um, the Senate. They took a real interest in me because I was interested in them in rugby league. So I'd often meet with them in the bar at night. I'd only have a milkshake. And they would talk to me about all sorts of things. They sort of adopted me, I think, almost like I was a daughter because of the rugby league. How fascinating. Right? Like, so that was her little hook in. Like, a lot of these women just find ways, like they kind of get a little hook into the system that admits them, even though they're not sort of eligible on other grounds. Milkshakes. It's the way of the future. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're a journo. Do you feel the same? Like, you could surely get a scoop if you like to have a drink. Do you drink? I drink a lot, yeah. Yeah. Like, I have absolutely, absolutely got stories from drinking around Parliament House. Absolutely. Because one of the things that happens is, and it is a very booze-friendly environment, right, and when you sit down with a notebook and you interview someone, they're totally on their guard, right? Of course. They'll tell you exactly how much they're planning to tell you. But... If you're having a beer, there's no notebooks in sight, they'll tell you a lot more stuff. And if you get a few drinks into them, they'll tell you more. Like I reckon the most, I have this really, well, fairly clear, okay, quite hazy recollection of a dinner that I had (laughs) once with um, a bunch of cabinet ministers and the wine was really going down uh, because I was buying, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they they just kept talking about all this stuff that was going on in the government and I was just like desperately trying to keep my own alcohol consumption below a point where my memory would be unreliable and I kept going to the toilet, like they were all blokes, um, I kept going to the toilet and taking notes on my leg <laughs> with pen. Wow. Because <laughs> no, I wanted to remember things. I reckon I got about four stories out of that night. Wow. But I'm totally conscious that I used alcohol, you know, as a tool um, to kind of get around the structures of information flow in that place. And I think, you know, it's interesting that um, this idea that there's kind of like almost a subculture around alcohol where people can learn things, find out gossip, find out powerful information, like not even if just journalists but like politicians run on info, like that whole building runs on what do you know about that person what do you know about the relationship between this person and that person like what do you know about people's vulnerabilities and dreams and weak spots and ambitions and so on like so it's actually a really really important um source of power and i think the mechanics have changed in new parliament house because they when they built the building there was a non-members bar but it's now been changed into the childcare centre. Like this, like wow. quite amazing generational shift, right? Yeah. That was strongly resisted for some time. Um, but because everybody now has these lovely big suites and big offices, they all have bar fridges. They all keep booze in their offices. So it's kind of changed from people gathering in a central place to people gathering in each other's offices. And I reckon that that has look. It has a big effect on the culture of the place. One, it really entrenches booze, but in a less kind of um, 
controllable or visible way. Yeah. Um, and two, it means that people retreat to their tribes a lot more because yeah. in the old members' bar you would run up against people that you, you know, didn't agree with politically and there'd be arguments but there'd yeah. also be you'd get to know people from another side of politics or from a different tribe of politics, right? Yeah. And I also think that in the old Parliament House where they used to run each, into each other in the dunnies was quite significant as well. Now they've all got, you know, showers and bathrooms and toilets and bars and everything in their own offices. They don't, And I think that that does contribute a little bit to the kind of tribalism that's he, well, in Parliament. Do you think that they should have, like, do you think they should be encouraged to go back to a more communal space to drink and I, mingle? Well, I think, look, I, I think there's um, definitely advantages to it just in terms of that culture. But mm. I think in terms of the volume of alcohol that's cons- consumed in Parliament, like it is an issue for a lot of people. Um, so I... Um, I'll play you a little grab from Emma Hussar, um, the former um, Labor member for Lindsay. Like you, she's not a big drinker. Um, and Oh, I she, can, by the way. I just... I know you have capacity, <laughs> just not the, you know, intention. I just like driving too much. You do love driving. I love can driving. Can you just be my driver? Like oh, I mean... 100%, <laughs> yes. I'll, like, roll out of some dinner with, like, cabinet ministers and take me home, Steph. 100%. We'll talk no. about this later. <laughs> um, anyway, here's Emma Hussar talking about the booze culture in Parliament. As it gets towards the end of the year and Christmas sittings, and I don't know why they even bother to try and have sittings during December because it's just all the Christmas parties and when, or when they're late night sittings. I've known people to be quite um, probably intoxicated and so when they talk about drug testing and alcohol testing, other employees in other workplaces, and I'm like... Okay, well, maybe we should get a booze bus outside the um, on the green carpets outside the door before we all walk in here, because I'd be happy to subject myself to that. Because the irony is, we're we're there setting the tone for the rest of the country, and we're telling other people how to behave in their workplaces. When lo and behold, the the conduct and the behaviour in this workplace is not always of the standards we're expecting of everyone else, which is blatant hypocrisy, and people hate it, and it's not okay. Hmm. Yeah, when you think about the prescriptiveness that. Parliament has over other workplaces, you know, and the unacceptability of most people turning up to work a bit pissed. Yeah. It's like not a bad point, is it? But one thing that I think is, is interesting to chart is just looking back to ancient history and the suffragettes being a little bit about, you know, alcohol and let's stamp out alcohol. It's interesting that you do have women in contemporary Parliament saying, yeah, actually, booze is... Um, a, a real problem in the but it's, but it's so interesting, you know, like that you bring up these things because I remember I used to work at like a job that I used to have and I just couldn't stand this manager that I had. He was just a prick. Yeah. And um, that never happens in Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, we had a Christmas party and because um, I don't drink, that's only quite new. And um, we all got drunk together. And I saw him in a very different way. Right. Because I was like, oh, he's just an insecure man who is very officious because of whatever. Like, he's actually a fun, nice person. Okay. You know what I mean? And he relaxed around us too. You know, he had this kind of... And that's weirdly important. God, it's so weird, isn't it? Because they almost have to be exempt from some of the same rules that they're trying to pass. Yeah. To be able to pass them almost. Does that make sense? Like, they have to be exempt from the same rules because it's so intense or something. They need oh, to be yeah. able to. 
I, think I don't that, know. I think that Parliament House is often just viewed as a completely out-of-the-box different workplace. So there mm. are things that you can get away with or do. Like and they just work differently and they view themselves, I guess. It's a workplace that views itself as remarkable and unique and, and that's true. But I think also you run the risk that you then overlook kind of stuff that probably yeah. shouldn't be overlooked. And one of the issues that I think women have um, is... They're cautious about that booze culture because they know that it's got a different relevance to them and the way that they'll be construed. Like that a hard-drinking bloke is sort of one of the boys but a hard-drinking woman might be like, oh, a bit of a slut or a bit of a like, oh, she hasn't really got it together, you know, sort of thing. So I wonder if there's any crossover, I mean, I'm I'm sure that there is, between sexual assault and alcohol as well. Like, I mean... Oh, 100%. Yeah. and I like, But I wonder if you called out one, could it help stop the other? And then, you know, like all of those sort of things that we were just talking about. I think it's definitely intermeshed for sure because people's judgment, you know, which should be part of your um, persona at work, like you're using your unimpaired judgment, particularly in a job like politics where there's like decisions that have to be made all the time on strategy and like whatever. If you spend part of your day kind of with your judgment um, affected in some way, surely that's a problem, right? But the other thing, the other side of it, Steph, that I think I find really interesting is that back in the day when women were these sort of moral crusaders, Mm. something else evolved and that was this argument that women should be in parliament or in politics because they might make the place nicer, like that they might make the place more moral. And I reckon if you have a look at a bunch of those early women and even somewhere in some respects to this day, one of the like expectations on women parliamentarians is that they'll be sort of somehow a bit more pleasant or that they'll be more moral. I'll, yeah. read, I'll read you something that um, I think it was the Sydney Morning Herald ran in 1943, which was the year when Australia first actually took the step of electing women to the federal parliament. Um, still no toilets, but, you know, there you go. <laughs> um, Here's what they uh, wrote about the arrival of Dorothy Tangney, who was the first woman in the Senate, and Enid Lyons, who was the first woman in the House of Representatives. I'm going to do my own special 1943 editorial voice here. These women have an intellectual honesty which will never submit to the shabby compromises, subterfuges, insincerities and face savings of party politics. So they were like... Setting the standard pretty high, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, these women are going to be better. They're going to be less craven. They're going to be less merciless and self-interested. They're going to be these amazing new creatures that will make politics a nicer place, which I think is totally unrealistic. <laughs> but it's also kind of true somewhere. Really? I reckon. Do you think, but, like, one of the... Okay, explain. Okay, so, well, I mean, you know, it's not totally true, but I think that, okay... This is going to show the side of me, I guess, but I think that women are generally more empathetic or not that we're more empathetic but we're, it's more okay for us to show that. Mm. Um, I think that there is, because there's a, a judgment on women for ruthlessness, we're less likely to be outwardly ruthless mm. um, and because you kind of have to be that way, there's almost an expectation that that's what you bring along and then so kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. I think that's certainly true. Mm. I think you do get this sort of consequently an expectation, Mm. you know, like a higher standard for women, which 
is kind of tricky, like if you're also being a politician, you know. Of course. So decisions, you know, like maybe ruthless decisions that you take um, might be construed differently. But even even the even the wording, right? Like ruthless is a strong word, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. If you got called manipulative, that's evil, you right. know. Like that's yeah. that's like ugh, it makes your skin crawl, <laughs> you know. Like I'd rather be called ruthless than manipulative. Yeah. Because well, I personally am quite ruthless, so yeah, I'm cool with that. Are you? No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm useless. <laughs> um, but you know, there's there's almost a power behind being ruthless. Is that you make the right decisions? You make the decisions you need to make. Manipulative is like you might not be making the best decisions, but you're cheating. You know, um, it's it, it's it's super interesting. I I'm so obsessed with morals and and where does that moral compass lie? Like I often talk to my dad about this. There's a saying, it's uh, we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their actions. Um, that is so true. I know. And, so I, and, I, and I hate it. But like, and I, and I always, my, my big thing in my life is I want to judge people by their intentions, you know, um, and try to be a little bit harsher on myself about my actions right. because we can sort of, kind of push off too much. Anyway, my my dad and I often talk about that, what matters more, the action or the intention, and that's that to me is that big difference between being manipulative and being ruthless. Right. And that's when it becomes very gendered, I think. You're, yeah, I think that's spot on. And I think that in the case of women in politics, often there is an intention ascribed to their actions yes. that, like, that, that men don't necessarily find attached to their actions. So, for instance, like, you know, the whole history of Australian Parliament is, you know, littered with examples of blokes absolutely going the tonk and ripping jobs off each other and absolutely screwing each other over yeah. and so on. And I don't know, it kind of it kind of washes through the system a little bit. But if you have a look at the way, for instance, Julia Gillard's decision to challenge Kevin Rudd really stuck to her, like stuck to her mm. for the whole way that yeah. the time that she was Prime Minister. There was a whole lot of, you know, well, she's a bit, you know, ruthless or she's a bit, you know, the way that she just mowed Kevin Rudd down. Yeah. Wow, that's a bit, don't, don't like to see that, yeah. you know. And I think there are plenty of blokes who have probably done worse <laughs> to better yeah. people. Oh, sorry, Kevin, I didn't mean that against you. But you know what I mean? Like a, it, it, it's a really interesting example um, of how that, there's a bit of a differentiated treatment between men and women. And I, I wanted to, like, on an extreme kind of moral example, also just wanted to talk to you about something that Cheryl Curnow told me. And, like, you remember, like, Cheryl Curnow, you know, she was the leader of the Democrats and then she defected to the ALP, like, which was an absolutely sensational decision. And mm. it was super controversial because people thought that she'd sort of betrayed the Democrats and, you know, made a hard-headed political call in her own interests that people were sort of really unhappy with. Um, but the other thing that was really significant that happened to Cheryl Curnow is that after she left politics, it was revealed that she had had a long-standing affair with Gareth Evans, who was then a very senior figure in the ALP. And the way that that affair was reported on and the consequences of the revelation of that extramarital affair, which was extramarital for both of them, 
had really differing long-term consequences for the two parties involved. So I just want to, uh, I'll let Cheryl explain it. Having had a consensual relationship with a peer, with no corruption involved, um, and seeing the way my life, my professional life, went after that with no offers of employment, just like a, you know, somehow, somehow damaged Somehow, somehow damaged. There's a taint attached to you so that if anybody wanted to employ you, they'd be worried that this taint would be brought up. But my partner in a consensual relationship got an Order of Australia, had an international career, Chancellor of a university. Career went on without a hiccup, really, and it was just a kind of embarrassing blip not to be spoken about. I'm the one that gets phone calls 19 years later asking me, what do I think about the latest revelation of somebody who's had a relationship in Parliament? To the best of my knowledge, he hasn't had one call. So it's the woman who's stalked, psychoanalysed, bound hard to uh, employ and has to forge out a completely new life for themselves. Now, I'm happy to own my life. I've had to. And you should, I think, for your own mental health, you have to own your life. But do I have to keep apologising or explaining for 19 years as a woman in a relationship and the man doesn't have to once? What is that about? Yeah. (laughs) Well. And it's true, you know, like that story attaches itself much more to her than it does to the person with whom she was in a consensual relationship. So this is a weird thing to say. You know, I say that a lot. Um, <laughs> say a lot of weird shit. Um, I love that. Uh, do you think it's it's one of those, like, let's view it in a completely different way. Hmm. It's almost um, flattering. Like, hear me out. Right. All right, I've got to hear you out. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a really sort of messed up way, it's almost flattering. It's like, oh, we can expect it of men. I mean, pfft. But a woman, come on, no. Well, she says that a bit, you know, like that we expect poor standards of behaviour in relationships from men. So it's like less surprising that he would cheat on his wife than she would cheat on her husband, which is kind of like, it's so messed up though, isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, I take your point, it it speaks to our higher expectations, Mm -hmm. but then higher expectations are a massive burden, right? Oh, of course. Like, but I'm just saying like, you know, let's just go, yeah. Give us a pat, a pat on the back. Look at us. We are the moral high ground. <laughs> you know what I mean? We are the designated drivers of democracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> Write that down. That's good. <laughs> TM. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. And actually that, that is so true. Like I think um, we may have been discussing this at another time, but responsibility always feels like such a huge burden uh, and responsibility is a massive burden, but it is. There's also something incredibly freeing about responsibility huh. because you, I think you can lose yourself in it, or you can. It's a it's a space to learn and grow from. I think it's actually a place where you can be quite vulnerable from, which I think is very freeing. Um, and I just, it, it just also makes me feel for men a little bit somewhere, you know, yeah. that whole toxic masculinity right. shit that I don't think is 
it just goes on and on. It's so, so there's cyclical. expectations on both sides, right? Like an, on men's side, it's like an elevated expectation of invulnerability and on women's side, it's an elevated expectation of moral responsibility. Yes. And, you know, the only way to really fix that in a parliament and, like, hearing all these stories of these pioneering women who just, like, absolutely had to throw themselves in mm. and adapt to a different new environment that didn't include them or invite them, whether it was the parliamentary bar or, you know, whatever... The only way to fix that is to have other people like you, you know, is to have a diversity of people across the parliament. Representation. To, right? And it kind of is the only way to have an effective representation of a big group of people, which Absolutely. is what the democratic system is, right? And it's like you have to empower young people to become the example that they wish they could see. Yep. You have to empower young people that the consequences are worth the the growth, I think. Do you think that, that um, listening to this show, um, young people want to go into Parliament? <laughs> Occasionally we're not pitching it so well. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but they would. I think this – but I, I, honestly, I think that the – this is the kind of thing where this would inspire me, for example. This is like the right kind of person listens to this and goes, I can change it. Right. Well, it's true that it is constantly changing. I think more than we necessarily appreciate and I think sometimes like a big structured environment like Parliament House feels like it just soldiers on and doesn't change, but it really is. Mm. And it is changing because of younger and more diverse people that come into the place. Representation anyway, matters, though. It really does. Yeah. And it has changed a lot. Right. Well, I think we've agreed on that. Can I get a ride home? Yes, of course. <laughs> I'm smashed. <laughs> oh, that wasn't water. Right. <laughs> there are so many stories about women in Parliament from the last hundred years and we cover some of them in this podcast and we cover more of them in the misrepresented TV show. You can binge the whole lot on iview right now. Well, I'm not done with seeing your face yet, Annabelle, so I'll be watching. This is why I love you, Steph. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.